Welcome to Happily Ever After is just the beginning. Keeping your relationship not just together, but happy, and we mean truly happy, is part art and part science. You've come to the right place. Here's your host, Leslie Dorries. The writer Pat Conroy once said, each divorce is the death of a small civilization. And back in the day when my parents got divorced, it was still a relatively rare event. Now it's commonplace, but that doesn't mean it isn't without negative consequences. Even the best divorce still causes trauma for some of those involved. And this is really the interesting thing about trauma. It's a condition that we're learning more and more about each day, which is great. But what we also are learning is that it impacts each person differently. And what might not be traumatic to you might be to your partner or your child. And more importantly, trauma has lasting impact, especially on your relationships. And that's the topic for today's show because most of us have experienced some form of trauma in our lives, whether it's a divorce, the death of a family member or even a pet, bullying, or moving at a critical time in your life. Trauma is the unaddressed elephant in a lot of living rooms. So to help unpack the impact of trauma and provide some positive ways of dealing with it, I'm joined by clinical psychologist, life coach, and author of The Stress-Proof Brain, Dr. Melanie Greenberg. Dr. Greenberg, Melanie, thank you so much for being on the show and talking about this really critically important topic. Well, thank you, Leslie. I'm happy to be here. So, you know, I know some people might be thinking that this conversation might not apply to them. So can you start with an explanation of what trauma actually is? Sure. So in my view, that there's two ways you can think about trauma, there's, or two kinds of trauma. One is what we might call the big T traumas. So that's events that are perhaps life-threatening, like, you know, or something like sexual abuse, or you know, being, being in a life-threatening accident, or earthquake, or something like that. Mm-hmm. What a lot uh, of people being, think of when they think of trauma. Right, exactly. Yeah. And actually, to get an official diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, you need to have one of those. But more um, informally, as a psychologist, I, I see that sometimes events that don't, you know, aren't that acutely life-threatening can also have a very big emotional impact on people and, and produce some similar symptoms. Mm-hmm. And... Those might be things you talked about like divorce or even growing up with a narcissistic parent or growing up with an alcoholic parent. There's something about the chronicity of it, even though each incident may not be as severe, that kind of it really accumulates, you know, to, to almost the volume of those other kinds of events. So, so is it fair to say that most of us have had some form of trauma in our lives? Yeah, probably. Um, you know, I think most people have something, <laughs> even if it's, you know, and it may or may not be traumatic for you. The same, like, in, the same incident may be more traumatic for some people than others. So, say, the death of a pet or something, you know, some people may not find that traumatic. They may, may be sad, but just, you know, they, they kind of bounce back. Mm-hmm. But for somebody else, maybe the pet was the only companion and they're lonely and they're old. And then, you know, that can be a very, very difficult event that just takes 
a long, long time to bounce back from. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also really um, an important thing to talk about, that, that a lot of times when people experience the same event, they don't necessarily respond to it the same way. And I'm thinking um, of you know, potentially a divorce because there's so much that depends on the age of the child when their parents get, gets divorced or their relationship with each of their parents. And for some people, they can write it through, and for other people, it can be a really devastating um, event or, or the other thing that I talked about is, is, is moving. I, I've known many people who, um, you know, I've had clients come to me and they, they talk about moving and their, their child is, is in high school. And I said, oh, if you can at all not move while your child is in high school, <laughs> please don't do that. Because that could be a really uh-huh. dramatic event, even though it's a normal life thing. Yeah, exactly. And I've, I have clients that some of those kind of events have stuck with them like that moving in high school, you know, because mm-hmm. being torn away from your friends and then you go somewhere else and uh, maybe people are mean or won't let you in. Mm-hmm. Um, or, yeah, a lot of those kind of events, like being bullied, it can stay mm-hmm. with people into adulthood, some of these early events. Well, and, and that's pretty common. Me, right. And that brings me to what I wanted to talk about because you wrote an article that recently appeared on the Psychology Today website entitled, How Traumas Create Negative Patterns in Relationships. And in this article, you mentioned several ways that trauma shows up after the event. Um, So there's something happens, somebody's traumatized by it, and then there are these things, you know, the the impacts of trauma. And you talk, um, I was wondering if you could talk about two of them, the fight, flight, freeze response, and then also something you call the shamed-based responses. What are those and how do they work in connection with trauma? Sure. So let me start with fight, flight, freeze. So this is a wired in response of your brain, sometimes of the primitive networks of your brain that were originally designed to help you deal with with physical threats like a lion or a tiger and that's probably what Mm -hmm. our ancestors dealt with so the fight and flight is is a response where a part of your brain called the amygdala indicates there's a threat here there's something the body has to respond to and this sets off a biochemical kind of cascade that's Mm -hmm. designed to like have the whole body be activated in the brain. So, you know, glucose flows and um, blood flows to the big muscles and things like that for running away or for fighting. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can we have that response not necessarily only with physical danger now. You know, we might have that response if somebody is, you think somebody's going to leave you or something. Um, and then freeze is, is also wired in. It's when you face something that's even more difficult, that you know, maybe it's something that um, for our ancestors it would be the ones where they, they felt they couldn't fight back or run away. So mm-hmm. there's no alternative then to just, you know, to play dead kind of thing. So <laughs> yeah, everything just kind of shuts down. Yeah, you just kind of like, okay, go into that fetal well, position and don't, and, and don't move. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So that's what it's like for humans. You sometimes might almost feel like deadened or helpless mm-hmm. and or numb or, um, and you know you kind of you can't really 
use your normal coping capacities. That's when a freeze response is set in. Um, with regard to shame, often with, with events that are devastating, people, the memory center can sometimes go a bit offline from the cortisol. And, and what happens is sometimes people seem to and take in very fixed beliefs that are not necessarily true, but that feel very true and are very hard to dispel. Um, so people often blame themselves for traumas, even if, you know, objectively they weren't to blame. And they just, it's amazing how the human brain finds ways <laughs> to blame ourselves. <laughs> you know, if yeah, it is. I mean, and that's true because I've talked to, I mean, I felt this way um, as a child, and I know many children of divorce feel like, well, maybe if I, I mean, I, I would say, well, maybe if I hadn't fought with my sister, my dad wouldn't have left, mm. even though as, even, even now as an adult, I can logically say, okay, you didn't have anything to do with it, but there's that little kid inside me that says, but I had to have something to do with it. So is that kind of what you're talking about? Absolutely. That exactly describes it very well. Uh, it's like you feel it's true even despite knowing, you know, knowledge to the contrary. And um, often little kids do it um, as a protective mechanism of the brain. So, you know, if you're responsible for something, at least there's hope, like you can maybe change something. But, if, you know, if you weren't responsible and it just randomly happened, that, that feels even more scary. Uh -huh. So kids tend to, you know, to think it's them. And in a way, it, gives, it can help them see the parents as, as still good. Um, as yeah, not which doing is something bad to them, kind of. Right, which is an incredibly important survival skill in, it, in and of itself because we have to trust those big people because that our lives literally depend on them being okay and being part of our lives. So, yeah, I think it, it does make some even if it sounds might sound a little weird when we say it out loud. But yeah, it makes sense from like a survival perspective. And a lot of our, our brain is wired for survival. Mm -hmm. So that's what it's considering. It's not necessarily your brain trying to make you happy. Your brain's just trying to keep you living. And <laughs> so it helps you get along with more powerful people or people that, you know, are you dependent on, so on. So is there more to the shame-based responses? So, well, one of the things with shame is that if you feel responsible, you might, you know, feel shame at being responsible. So mm -hmm. uh, you feel shame that you, in your example, that you fought with your brother. But, mm -hmm. you know, somebody might get raped and then they might feel shame that they got drunk you know, they had too much alcohol or that they mm -hmm. were acting a certain way or, you know, even though that's, you know, that, that doesn't make you get raped, but they, you right. feel shame about, you know, behaviors you did that, that you see as sort of leading up to the event or, you know, oh, I didn't fight back enough. And it, it's amazing the variety of things you can feel shame about. It uh -huh. could be something you think caused the event or it could be that you didn't, you know, fight strongly enough or, you were weak or um, another example might be that you, you just feel unworthy because that's also if you people who are abused or maybe who have a, you know, a parent that's very critical, you uh -huh. can just feel unworthy, unlovable, not enough. Those are, are very common kind of trauma kind of beliefs and um, that creates shame, you know, if you're scared of getting found out that I'm really unworthy. 
and so something that make you make you avoidant in relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, and this this makes sense, and maybe it's maybe it's because I've always been fascinated by the brain. I just mm-hmm. find the fact that any of us are remote, you know, that any of our brains develop and any of us are even what you can consider remotely normal, knowing all the stuff that has to go on. But <laughs> this this idea that a lot of this is about trying to make sense of what happens, and it's not so much, I mean, yes, as children, we're egocentric because we don't have enough world experience to know that mm-hmm. these things happen, not because we are there, but, you know, it, it, it's sort of how we process it through our own experience. And it's, you know, and it sounds like a lot of these behaviors, the, the fight, flight, and freeze are are I think almost automatic behaviors because, mm-hmm. like you said, it goes it goes through the amygdala, which is not <laughs> is not our higher order thinking part right. of our brain. It's like uh-huh. be alive in the next mm-hmm. five seconds. Um, but these uh, but the shame based behaviors mm-hmm. sound like they're a little bit more cognitive and trying to make sense of well, I shouldn't have been out at 2 o'clock in the morning or I shouldn't have left my car door open or I, sh- you know, all these mm-hmm. shoulds, the, the things that we're trying to, I guess, kind of feel, I don't know if it, is it about feeling more in control, I guess, that life isn't just yeah. random and that even, uh-huh. even though, you know, I didn't deserve this or this shouldn't have happened. I contributed to it in some way, which means if I don't do that the next time, I'll be okay. Exactly. That's exactly right. So there's, there's a weird kind of safety in that. Um, and also just a making sense, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's mm-hmm. something wrong with me, this, the fact that I experience this makes sense. Otherwise, the world just doesn't make sense. Yes, and human um, beings... And human, and human beings do our best to try to make sense out of the world, <laughs> even things yeah. that any possible sense. But but it is. I think it's a, you know, and and it does, to a certain degree, is logical because otherwise, you know, <laughs> we feel completely yeah. out of control. So yeah, this, our brains are prediction machines. They're basically designed to like help us understand, predict what's going to happen next. So it makes sense, like, in that context. Mm-hmm. So this is Happily Ever After is just the beginning on webtalkradio.net. I'm Leslie Dories, and I'm having an interesting conversation about the impact of trauma on romantic relationships and other relationships with clinical psychologist, life coach, and author, Dr. Melanie Greenberg. And like I said before, you may not think you have had any trauma in your life, Maybe you've just escaped what's known as big T trauma, and if so, that's fantastic. But more than likely, you've had some small T trauma. And while not as challenging in some ways as the big T kind, it still may be showing up in unproductive ways in your romantic relationship. The good news? You could do something about it. And if you would like help with learning effective strategies to minimize its impact, I Make the offer that you take a moment and give me a call or send me an email and schedule a free no-obligation transformation session. You can reach me at Leslie, L-E-S-L-I, at foundationscoachingnc.com. That's F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N-S, coaching, and as in Nancy, C as in Charlie, dot com. 
or you can give me a call at area code 919-924-0463. Again, that's 919-924-0463. And now I want to get back to this interesting conversation with Dr. Greenberg. And the next, you know, in, in the article you also talked about how trauma impacts a person's beliefs about relationships and how this might influence who they choose as partners and how the relationship plays out. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. So there's a couple ways that trauma, especially relational trauma, can influence your beliefs about relationships. So say you had a parent that was abusive or neglectful. You may end up with an abandonment schema, like you think (laughs) somebody's going to abandon you or you may end up with a kind of a mistrust. I can't trust other people. Like, you know, if I make myself vulnerable, they're going to hurt me. Or you Uh may just be drawn to abusive people because maybe you feel defective, that you feel that's all you deserve, you know. Um, And so those are some examples of beliefs that can play out in in who you choose in a relationship and how you act in a relationship. Uh And... Another example is if you become a caretaker, you might form the belief, it's not okay to focus on my needs, I'm not allowed to, or that, you know, that would make me selfish, or there's just no room for them. And so you end up kind of putting aside your own needs and always focusing on other people and trying to take care of them. But what that can do is, is lead to a kind of resentment building up because the needs that you've suppressed don't go away. And Mm -hmm. so those are examples of a kind of underlying trauma-related beliefs that could cause problems in relationships. So let me ask a question, because there's there's a common behavior that I see a lot, and it happens a lot more with women, I think, than men, or maybe it just plays out differently with women, about this whole people-pleasing phenomenon. Mm-hmm. That if, if somehow I claim anything for myself, if, if somehow I do anything that disappoints or upsets somebody else, then, you know, I'm, I'm bad, I'm selfish, I, I, I'm shame-filled, really, is, is what mm-hmm. this is. Mm-hmm. Is this trauma-related behavior? It can. It's little t, probably. Little right. t trauma-related behavior. Sometimes I suppose it could just be cultural beliefs, you know, like mm-hmm. somebody, you know, that you model from somebody or that got ingrained. Um, but it can also be, you know, that you were responded to that way by your parents, that, you know, oh, don't be selfish and, you know. Uh-huh. Or, or, you know, or you were punished for expressing a need or something like that. And so it can be in that way trauma-related as well. It, it is shame-based. It makes you, you know, feel self-sacrificing, like feeling like you have to please other people all the time. And maybe that's how you survived your childhood. You know, if you had a parent maybe whose love was conditional, mm-hmm. so, you know, you had to get a the you had to meet their needs to be loved or you had to, you know, fit a certain profile, get the good grades or whatever it was. Um, you may have learned to do that kind of as a way to survive and get your needs met in the home. 
But, you know, then, then it sticks around even after you've left home. Like it sticks around past its usefulness. Those habits, whatever helped us survive our childhood, <laughs> yeah. you know, gets stuck in our brains and like prioritized. So we get into these very fixed behavior patterns which no longer serve us often. So, is, so, it, so these behavior patterns, these things that we do in our minds, what I call coping skills to, to get us, you know, to keep us alive is basically what our brains are telling us is you have to do this to stay alive. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does that influence who we choose as partners? Well, sometimes it could be a kind of a trauma bond where maybe both people have been through you know, very difficult or traumatic childhoods and there's, there's, just an, mm-hmm. there's a kind of an emotional intensity to them and sometimes unconsciously people are just drawn to that. You know, they're not drawn to the person who's maybe boring, a little bit you know, <laughs> like stable, <laughs> but they find the stable person boring. The stable right, person they, see stability is, they see stability as boring, and, and these are the people who are drawn to you know, the high drama, high conflict kind of relationships, because that's what they grew up with, maybe? Exactly, they grew up with chaos, and we, I think we just unconsciously drawn to what's familiar. Mm-hmm. Perhaps at some level unconsciously thinking we might have a better ending this time, than in our childhood, but you know, mm-hmm. often that doesn't necessarily happen. <laughs> <laughs> right, because be, I mean, and I do think there, because there is a theory in in couples work and in, in marriage research that we choose people enough like you know, our, I guess the, mm-hmm. I, I guess whichever the parent was that we had this not necessarily healthy relationship with, but hopefully different enough that we can't change the outcome. But, you know, I think that's something yeah. for people to think about when they, you know, when they wonder why do they keep getting involved with certain kind of people? Um, because I do think that there, there is some information there and, um, and it's, and I think there's also something, and we were, you were talking about this a little bit before, about maybe how the relationship plays out, because I know that many children of divorce, mm-hmm. you know, either, they, either they don't want to get married ever because it, it, it doesn't work. I mean, that's their belief system. Mm-hmm. And, if they, mm-hmm. and if they do get married, then they kind of repeat behavior so that it doesn't work and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or the flip mm-hmm. side is, I'll get married, and no matter what, I won't get divorced. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, it's like it's um, different sides of the same coin in a way. Like mm-hmm. it's the same underlying issue, but it, it kind of comes out in polar opposite ways. But they're both mm-hmm. trauma-related in that both of those patterns are pretty rigid and you're not necessarily functional or adapting to the situation. They almost like you're driven to do that, you know, to, to be married no matter what or, mm-hmm. or to, um, you know, to maybe have mistrust and controlling issues that lead to a divorce or pick the wrong partner. So are there, what are, what are some other ways that trauma might be impacting our romantic relationships? So I think, you know, mistrust is big mm-hmm. and it's just, it's hard to be vulnerable. Um, it's hard often to show ourselves, you know, as we really are. 
And this is for women as well, I think, in particular. I sometimes try to, you know, act out like a, 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 be the perfect wife or whatever. And, um, you know, it's not really showing who you are. Uh, and then, you know, you can't maintain that. Or mm-hmm. you, you find somebody, you know, like you're trying to do everything perfectly. Maybe you find somebody that, that just wants to sit back and, and be looked after and not <laughs> contribute. <laughs> uh-huh. And, yeah. Uh, you know, after a while, that gets old and resentment builds up. Um, or, you know, you might find yourself in a relationship where you're just not, not treated in the way that you should, you deserve because uh-huh. it's like you've put yourself in that role, like I'm only here to please you. It doesn't really matter, you know, how, what, how you treat me. Yeah, and it so does, some it of, does, all of that can be trauma-related. Yeah, and it does seem to play out that, many of us do get tired of those old roles, which brings me to another question. And, you know, we've been talking about trauma, and and hopefully people have been listening and going, oh, maybe that experience was, you know, more traumatic or more impactful. Maybe we don't want to use the trauma word because people don't like labels. But maybe it had more impact on me than I thought. So are there some ways to identify what, if any, trauma someone might have experienced and then ways to, to deal with it in a healthier way than just repeating bad patterns? Sure. Um, so, you know, there's a range of traumas, but some of the things we've, you've mentioned, like divorce would be an example, or a parent leaving, or a parent dying, mm-hmm. or abuse, or having an abusive sibling, um, being bullied at school, mm-hmm. having an alcoholic parent, having a mentally ill parent, you know, family in, in poverty, um, mm-hmm. parents never around because they had to work all the time. Being, those, those would be some examples of, of patterns that can play out. Or seeing, you know, your mom and treat your dad badly or your dad treat your mom badly or somebody, you know, having an affair that the kid mm-hmm. kind of picks up on. All of that can be disturbing to a child and can play and it, out it later. Is, and it's interesting that you say that because a lot of people go, well, that's, that's just my life. It was no big deal. But it is a mm-hmm. big deal because it, it changes mm-hmm. how people learn to function in the world. And, you know, one of the things I tell my clients, you know, when, they're, when they – they're usually in some form of shame-based um, mm-hmm. conversation. And it's like, and what, and what I say to them, it's like, well, of course you do this. When I, when I know your story, when I understand what, where you came from, of course you would do this. How could you think mm-hmm. you would do something else? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and you that's know. de-shaming. That's great. So it right. de-shames them. Yeah, so... You know, I mean, one technique in therapy is to try to deem shame people. You kind of, you be the counter voice, you know, to the mm-hmm. shaming voice. And at the end, you be strong, a strong voice, and you persist, and you don't let the shaming voice win kind of thing. Um, and you, you can try to do that to try to be almost a coach to yourself. Um, you can try to, practice, to think about self-compassion. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes we can be more, more compassionate to other people than ourselves. Frequently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If this was my best friend, what would I say to them? 
Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's probably very different than what you say to yourself. Or, you know, would I, if it's my, someone I love, would I judge them in this way? And mostly you wouldn't. And so you can get that other perspective that's not shame-based, and then you can try to apply it to yourself. Um, the other thing is just to, to be more mindful, you know, of maybe the people you choose. And, mm-hmm. you know, not to mix up, like, intensity with intimacy. Um, oh, and, could you, you know, say you a little bit more about that? Because I think that that's a really important point. Yeah. I, I've noticed that also in people that have had trauma, difficult childhoods, that, again, they seek the drama or the sort of, you know, the ups and downs or the, the person, you know, ghosts them and then all of a sudden they come back and, you know, the person feels on top of the world and then they dropped again. Or, mm-hmm. you know, the, they treated it badly, but then, the, you know, the person apologizes. And so mm-hmm. some of that it can create a longing. It can create an intensity of, like, you know, of anger against the person or, or sadness. So you, it kind of the person provokes either, sh- you know, they showing strong feelings themselves, the partner, or they, and or they provoking it in you. Sometimes mm-hmm. that can make you think that you're closer to that person or, you know, because of these strong feelings. But uh-huh. it's actually not the same as intimacy. It's not the same as really somebody really knowing you and, like, caring about your well-being and supporting you and opening up and, you know, and then telling you their, their secrets or their deepest fears. So that's, that's more real intimacy. So but people get confused. And it sounds as if, um, that may be a way to help or to, I, don't, I hate using the word help, uh, in relation mm-hmm. to you know, helping my partner, but I guess being there for my partner, understanding, I mean, it's interesting because you know, my, my husband um, has never threatened to leave me because, I mean, he knows that I have this, this wound from my, from my parents' divorce, this trauma from mm-hmm. my parents' divorce. And, and no matter how annoyed, angry, disappointed, frustrated, whatever he's ever been with me, he's never used that threat because he knows it would devastate me and terrify me. And mm-hmm. so, he's, so it sounds like under, you know, and again, we have to feel enough trust to share this with our partners to let them know what our, you know, traumas or, or experiences are. And there has to be a level of trust. It's like something I tell my clients. It's like if your partner shares this with you, you must treat it with the absolute care that it deserves because they're trusting you with, with their deepest, darkest things. And I think is that one way that we can work with our partners um, yeah, with their trauma? Exactly. That's a really good example. It's kind of like, you know, you, you hold it as precious kind of thing. Like if somebody's mm-hmm. really telling you their they deepest vulnerabilities, you don't want to ever use that against them. Or, you know, you, you, you tread more lightly around that. You don't rub your partner's raw spots. We all have our raw spots, I think. Oh, so you try yeah. to... <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> so, and in, yeah, when we triggered, sometimes we can rub each other's raw spots, but we have to become more aware around that. Right, and I think, and, and I think that that's a productive way through this because because I do think that happens a lot that that my reaction to my raw spot triggers your raw spot and then we're kind mm-hmm. of off our faces. And so I think that's another way to take a look at a relationship and go, is there something 
you know, else driving, you know, what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, what's feeding it. And often right. it's people's emotional histories. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and they do matter because, like, like, like we said, the, they impact. And that's, and that's really what your article was all about. Um, yeah. And it, so where could people read this article or read more about trauma and how to deal with it, what impacts it has? Because, you know, you're... I'm sure your book talks about this as well. Yeah, thank you. So the article you're talking about is about how trauma impacts relationships, and it's on my blog. I have a blog um, called The Mindful Self-Express. So mindful and then self-express, like expressing yourself, and that's for psychology today. Um, so, or you could just go to Psychology Today and Google me. And then I also have a book called The Stress-Proof Brain, which deals with stress and trauma, you know, as themes, and sort of, and has lots of strategies for coping with with those. And I also have a website, drmelaniegreenberg.com, M-E-L-A-N-I-E-G-R-E-E-N-B-E-R-G. And that has resources, it has a newsletter, has articles, and also you can, um, if you would like to uh, to do therapy or coaching with me, you can contact me there. Um, I'm a licensed therapist in California. I'm not necessarily licensed in other states for therapy, but I can do coaching in other states. Absolutely. So what I want people to understand is that trauma isn't just a big devastating event that we think about like war or natural disasters. Sometimes it's just the constant stress of living in a dysfunctional environment. And it may be a true statement that your experience isn't that bad compared with what others have gone through, but it doesn't mean your experience isn't affecting you and your relationships. And most of us, I think, are walking wounded to a certain extent. (laughs) And I think it would be great to heal those wounds and create a healthier, happier life. And hopefully today you've you've gotten a little bit more um, aware of what's going on and hopefully we'll stop blaming yourself because, as we all know, that's not particularly effective. So (laughs) one of the things you'll keep doing um, to increase your relationship satisfaction and to have the relationships that you really want to have is to keep listening to the show. So until next week, stay loving.